RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. On Reality Check Radio, we like to talk to thinkers and people with experience in life in all sorts of ways and forms. And I think our next guest is one of those people, Alfred Ngaro. You, I'm sure, have heard of the name, cabinet minister, a politician. He was in parliament for nine years, obviously not there now. And um, a presence in Auckland, well-known personality in Auckland. And he joins us on Reality Check Radio. Alfred, it's great to have you. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, morning, uh, Paul, and uh, good morning to all our all the listeners for Reality Check Radio. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Are you a pastor? I need to check that. Yeah, I was. Look, I did a theological degree um, some years ago, and for 20 years, my wife and I were in ministry. We would say, what that was, does that mean? Is that we're pastoring, we're youth pastors, you know, looked after young people, um, made cup of teas. Um, so the whole thing around the role that we had was really about serving our community, uh, and in particular, obviously, around the spiritual elements, but also around the practical things. When we were pastoring, we had an op shop, food bank. Um, my wife's a counsellor and a family therapist. So really our, our heart was to serve the needs of our community, which is the way I was raised, Paul. Yeah. Uh, I'm a, a first generation of Pacific appearance. And the three things that we had that were important to us was our faith. Um, you know, see prayers in the morning, went to churches on Sunday, uh, sung hymns and things like that, but reminded us of values that we lived in. And family was really important to us. So, you know, everything was built around the family uh, and all the things that we did. Um, and the other third thing was around the future. Our parents always believed that they came here from the Pacific, like all migrants, uh, to give us a better future. So, in other words, do well at school, um, work hard, work smart. Um, and uh, those were the three things that I suppose were foundational to who I am. I carried on. Obviously, I'm an electrician by trade uh, as well, but carried on in serving uh, for 20 years in ministry, yeah. You remind me of that song, We Came to a Land of Plenty. Yeah, well, OMC. A, you remember that that track? Yeah, well, uh, uh, here's, a, here's a really interesting connection to that, is that my wife, who's uh, New Way in Samoan, um, Paulie Fuimana is her first cousin. They grew up together. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, and I used to go to his house in Ōtara because my wife's uh, brother was my best friend. So uh, I had family in Ōtara. So we know the the house that was on Velvet Crez, the Fuimana family, yeah, and um, yeah, it it was because in the middle of poverty, right? That people imposed upon you. Um, our families in our Pacific, we never thought that we were poor. It was it was an impression. People said, "Oh, look, you know, you, you're the poor brown people." And and yet, I can tell you, like Paulie, when he said "Ōtara Millionaires Club," uh, <laughs> that song "We Came to the Land of Plenty" is what our parents used to talk about. Yeah, it's a beautiful track. It really is. Okay, so here we are in this land of plenty. Maybe it's not so plentiful now. Early years spent in Ponsonby growing up, just in those early years, right? Yeah, John Street uh, is where I grew up, and uh, so I know the area really well. Vermont Street um, up onto, you know, there was the glue pot, which was at the top. Yeah, uh, everyone, yeah. A lot of people know that. and then uh, But right next to it was uh, the Patels who used to sell the veggies. So as a young kid, our job was to take the bag with the list and take the money and go up and get the vegetables, right? Um, actually, good days were going, we're catching a um, the old trolley buses down to farmers and even walking up K Road. It was a different story, a different place. But um, yep, Ponsonby was uh, a land of plenty, right? But also to the place of migration, Māori yep. Pacifica families there. So 
It was a great time. Boy, it's changed, huh, from those days. Yeah. Or has it? I think it has. <laughs> well, I think people have tried to keep aesthetically the housing, you know, because they yeah. love the old colonial look and you see a lot of renovations. Uh, but, yeah, no, the demographics have certainly changed. I've still got family, believe it or not, that are still living in the same houses. Oh, cool. And they're not many. Yeah. But start, some, some what do they call it, remainers? <laughs> yeah, the remnant. The remnant. Yeah, the remnant. <laughs> So I think we can agree, because I think we're in a similar age, that life was pretty good back then here. Do you think that's fair to say? Well, I suppose that, you know, it's that song, uh, Mike and the Mechanics, do you remember the one? Every generation seems to blame the one before. Yeah, the living yeah. years. That's, yeah, that's the, the, the living years. And it, it's an interesting take on sometimes we only look at the other generations and think about what they did. But if we take that question you said about, you know, what is it that we enjoyed about our time? is that I suppose there the are a few words. Freedom was one of them. Hmm. You know, as kids, you could run around. You went to school with no shoes on. You, um, you had a raincoat because you weren't dropped off at school. Um, you made trolleys out of bits of wood and an old Oh, those were, the, those were great times. Take the wheels off, you know, and you'd ride a bike, you know, and uh, you fell over in jungle gyms. You broke arms. You, you just did stuff. And I suppose we could explore a lot more than I suppose when, when I think about these, these times. So... I mean, I'd only compare it in the sense that that was our experience and what it did for us, I suppose, Paul, it uh, built a bit of character. Yeah. Like we learned how to persevere despite tough times. We um, learned how to explore and adventure and innovate and create new things. It's hmm. part of the culture that we grew up. You, um, you couldn't just go out and buy a fancy trolley, right, or a scooter. No, you made it. You found you bits it. and you made it. And you might have different wheels on every axle, <laughs> different sizes. <laughs> Don't worry about brakes or helmets. Hey? We didn't have anything like that. You just <laughs> you just reminded me the first one. I tried to convert an old milk cart that we found at the dump. Yeah. A little tip at the end of the suburb. And it was the first time I've ever tried to weld anything. <laughs> and it fell apart in the first meter. It was like one of those um yeah, uh, Laurel and uh whatever wherever the that um comedy duo were, you know, where the car falls to yeah. To bits. Uh, anyway, yeah, um, uh, great memories there. So also our parents and our older people at the time, they come out of a war substantially. They didn't seem to have the same anxiety about safety and, you know, keeping kids safe and contained as we see now. It was a different attitude. I mean, yeah. they, they would keep an eye on us, but they, they let us roam. Yeah, they did. And I remember growing up with my grandmother. So, you know, we were three generations in one house. And uh, I, th my memories, Paul, are like, um, you know, glass jars that were full of buttons and, and bits and pieces, writing letters on the back of an envelope or nothing was wasted. And that was the generation my, my, uh, my grandmother came from. She was, she was born at the turn of the century. And so she knew what it meant to preserve everything and anything that was there. Nothing mm. was wasted. I mean, one of my jobs was my grandmother telling me to go up and climb up the plum tree and get all the plums down. I remember I fell off that many times, but anyway, then we'd bring them in, wash them, and then I can remember then we'd have to then put the glass jars inside the oven to warm them up, right, because the on top of the gas stove was boiling all the plums. And hmm. so, um, yeah, there was so in three generations. But, you know, the amazing thing, Paul, is that, you know, it was a three-bedroom house. There were 12 of us living in the house, outside toilet, no running hot water. We had to boil the water in a boiler. 
and then yeah. bring it inside to the old cast iron bath, right? Right, yeah, but that, that's a long process filling it up. That's right, and uh, so yeah, lots of lots of memories about about that and uh, how that uh, they taught us things. I mean, it, it, it was never perfect. Yeah, but I remember that we used to share the, you know, we'd grow fr- uh, uh, what you call fruit on the trees, and we'd have to gather some of the leftover fruit and then take it to the neighbours, right? And that's that's just what you did. You shared things with people. Yeah. Wow. Okay. What do I say now? Fast forward all those years, those decades to where we are now. And I, I want to talk about your time in parliament in a moment and what, you know, what, what sort of perspective on things that has given you, because it must've counted for something, but let's go right to today first. And one of the reasons we're here chatting with you, and uh, that was a, uh, a blessing uh, or a meeting with uh, Christian groups to um, bless and pray to heal the divisions in New Zealand. Tell us about that. What, what was that about? Yeah, um, so I'd always had a, a Christian faith, and as I said, that we were raised in that as a family right the way through as, as Polynesian kids. So faith has always been something that's been inherent in who we are. And I always remember that, you know, my grandmother would say that, you know, when things get tough, always begin your day with prayer. Ask for a blessing, give thanks, give um, to God the things that you believe are are challenging at that time. So pray your prayer with a little petition and then um, then ask for his strength and to be able to go and achieve that. And I suppose I've always had that inherent in part of me, but I also realized, Paul, that there's a lot of us that grew up in a similar way. And mm. so when we face these challenges like we have and where we are at the moment as a country, um, we just began to realize there were more of us uh, individually doing that. And so we asked the question, could we gather together, really? And so um, we were quite surprised because we thought maybe 50 or 100 may show up. Well, we end up having about 500 people at nights coming, 400 during the day who would just come and just say, let's begin let's begin to pray. And, you know, prayer is not anything new. It's, uh, and it's not something weird because... Um, Parliament began in 1854, and that's what I learned. Uh, the first debate that happened on the 24th of May in 1854, actually up in Auckland, and you, <laughs> yeah, you talk yeah. about Parliament Street because Parliament was based in Auckland. Mm, uh, that's right. Began. And the very first debate of Parliament in New Zealand was about prayer. And so that's why in standing orders, you'll have it at 6.2 of standing orders. It's, it directly relates to the factors is that um, at every sitting of Parliament, there shall be a prayer that's prayed. And so the prayers that were prayed were about that, you know, uh, humbly putting all personal interests aside, private and personal interests, so we beseech thee. In other words, it's an old word of saying, we ask that God would give us wisdom. So there were simple things about, you know, being wise, being conscious about what you're about to do. It talked about, you know, seeking the peace and prosperity of a country, you know, then therefore you were being mindful about how you would conduct the affairs of what you were doing. So, um, and then it talked about obviously honoring the queen because we're a monarch constitution country. And then also too, we give thanks, you know, to the Lord. And so we prayed that prayer because we believe that we're a Christian nation in Jesus' name. So really it was taking a hold of that same belief and value that founded our country. That was part of founding the governance of our country and actually activating that, coming together. And we were actively praying that in, believing in that, talking about, you know, while we pray, as my grandmother would say, there's always an action that goes with the prayer. So part of it was not just praying in our own houses and homes, but saying, what if we came together? 
united together, began to pray. Then what if we walked along the ground and began to say that the, the words that were spoken, that were declared over the people that were protesting at that time, but also over the nation that divided our nation, we're going to turn around and make another declaration and say, actually, we don't agree with those words. And as my grandmother and my parents would often say, now pray a blessing. And you know, the amazing thing, Paul, is that on the Thursday morning, we were in there at 5 a.m. and TV1 and TV3 are there. They heard us singing the song, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you. You know, it was just a blessing upon the nation. And Ryan Bridge from TV3 actually recorded a, a small segment of that and said, here they are. There's a group of Christians coming. Um, he'd been told that we came every year. It's Somebody else had said that, not us. But, you know, we were we were declaring a blessing. And that's what was the whole event about. You know, we're not going to just sit here and take it. We're going to now declare a blessing. But also to out of that, we're now saying, then what can we do to be the blessing? How are we going to shift and change things? And having conversations like this, I think, are an important part of that. Yeah, I was just thinking as you're talking there, uh, I wasn't at the Wellington protest. I would have been if I'd really made an effort. Okay, I'll be honest with that. Uh, but uh, I'm doing other stuff now to do what I can using the skills I have. But one thing that really kind of upset me during that was I would flick between the mainstream, because you just mentioned those channels, the mainstream media coverage of it and what politicians, and you know politicians, were saying about it. And then I was flicking to the live streams and seeing what was actually happen, uh, happening. And I did that for virtually every day that they were there. I found it absolutely fascinating, compelling, uplifting. But one thing I couldn't kind of square away was how on one hand you've got people being projected in a certain way. And then when you watch the actual real live stuff, you get a sense that these people are beautiful people doing a beautiful thing. And I just couldn't work out why one side couldn't see that. I just couldn't get it. Yeah, no, I, I'm like you, Paul. I'm, I was actually out of the country looking after my mum and dad. I was in the Cook Islands, and you know, and my heart went out when I saw not only the way they were treated, but you know, Paul, when I was in there for nine years, one thing that we always did is that you see, Parliament uh, is for the people. It's the people's ground. It's a public space. Um, Parliament itself was called the House of Representatives. So all 120 MPs represent its local community throughout the nation. So when people have come to whether deliver a petition or begin to make a statement, we always went out, right? It's not about whether we agreed with them. It's about we respected them. And I felt aggrieved, to be honest, that not one of those parliamentarians made the effort to go out and just to hear what they had to say. And I felt that um, both the Speaker of the House, the way he constructed things and I mean, the way he conducted himself, but also too, I suppose, the leadership of the government that said that, you know, to stand in solidarity against these type of people. What are they talking about? And, and, and they never went out to hear them, uh, to hear what they had to say, hear what they had to say. And uh, yeah, like you I, and like many others, um, I was really, I was really aggrieved, to be honest. I, I couldn't believe it that um, that that had happened. Uh, and I know, I know, I'm right. I know I'm right in, in knowing who the beautiful people were yeah. there. But that just shows you where a nation can arrive at in a very quick time, right? It's only 
veneer thin stability and uh, and freedom and and the way we look at our fellow man and woman it seems like it's solid but it's not really is it well one of the things that you uh, were talking and asking questions about about you know the days in which we grew up on and i suppose there was a set of values that we we had that held us together as a nation uh, and what i started to see and i remember speaking at a at a meeting paul uh, just recently when people were talking about this and i said look we didn't come to the demise as a nation overnight over a Good long point. period of yeah. time you know um I mean, you would have seen some of Ian Wishart's uh, previous articles about different politicians and circumstances. There's a number of that have written about things that have shifted in leadership. But also, even as a nation, we've given away on certain things. Uh, if, uh, if I think of an example, for instance, in 2005, and I remember I was in the community at that time, really working hard to sort of support change, and uh, there was the debate around the Prostitution Law Reform Bill. Now, everyone will have a different view on that, and Yes, people were advocating about the fact that um, there needed to be protection, but there was a way of doing it without opening up and actually validifying a position. Now, people will have a different view on that. But when we gave value to the factors is that the value that a person could, and and what we gave way to, um, Paul, is the freedom to choose, irrespective of the moral value that was there. And I have to say that once you start giving way to moral values, then what happens is that then everything shifts and then you start replacing it with values that people can determine themselves. And again, I'm only speaking from my own position, but what's held me together, my family, and as you said, that we had a value that as a nation that had certain values, even as politicians, the parliamentary prayer, whether they acted on it or not, there was a foundation statement that was talking about there. In the Treaty of Waitangi, for instance, you know, they talk about Henry Williams and look, everyone will have a different view on the history and heritage but one of the things that I've seen, and I've talked to Māori Komatu up in Ngāpui, is that he introduced a word called kawanata, which means covenant, right? And he used that on a biblical framework on, and understanding that, that a covenant relationship is about a relationship that you commit. It's spiritual, it's moral, it's physical, it's practical. It's more than just a partnership. You know, it's actually got a stronger bond to it. And that's what he talked about. So the word kawanata so what I'm saying is that embedded in our history and heritage, we've had strong moral values that have been like this, this net that's held us together. Once we started breaking them down, then we started losing what I believe, and again, it's only my own view, we started losing hold of holding on to something, and now we're at a state where we're saying that they've taken away our freedoms. I said, well, we gave way to a lot of things over a long period of time. And the more we started breaking those down, then it became harder to say, then what do we stand for? And what are the things that will hold us together? Um, and it's not about a judgment, but it's about saying these are values that we felt that have been important for us as a, as, as a people. Why do you think pe people move away from those values then? Because, I mean, I have to say they do feel right. They do feel like if you're going to, you know, look at a whole lot of values and, and, and work out which ones are the best and work, the best and feel right. It's the ones that we're talking about. Yet people, other people don't feel that. Uh, I mean, how do we explain that, do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you can only start off with your own journey, right? Like all of us have. We started on our own journey, like when we were raised, what that meant and how things gave way. And we, we would have seen 
you know, like it's the good old Western that, you know, not many people but you and I in our generation Remember the um, Clint Eastwood movie called The Good, The Bad and the Ugly? Yes, I do. Yeah, Lee Van Cleef, you know, he was an evil-looking character. and But I, I sometimes I've thought that sometimes life is in journey. You, you see the good bits, you see the bad bits, and you see the really, really ugly bits. And so in our own story and my story, I've seen the good bits, I've seen the bad, and I've seen the ugly. And I suppose that um, sometimes when we get to the ugly bits, then how can how do we redeem them? How do we learn the lessons from the past so we don't repeat them into the future? Well, how do we persuade people that there's a better better way? Yeah. Well, I think the, the only way that I can, again, you have to start off with your own heart and how you conduct yourself and your heart and your home and then obviously into your community. And that is that, um, you know, it's the way I treat other people, the way I see them, irrespective of where they are. It's never about judging people, but it's about holding love, unconditional love, but at the same time, holding a position, right? That That's there, that you can have. Um, and so to me, I think that's really important. I've always held on to that. You know, one of the things that I found that when I was a, a politician in parliament and being a Christian conservative, people would often say to me, they'd often ask this question about, for instance, uh, the rainbow community. And they'd go straight there. They goes, oh, what about the rainbow community? And I said to them, why are you trying to divide my whānau and my family? They said, no, I'm not. I said, yes, you are, because here's my reality. I've got people who make choices in that from my family and my whānau. And you know what? I may not agree with their choice, but you know what? I love them because they're my family and my whānau. We still eat together. We still meet together. We still laugh. We still have all the celebrations that are part of family, and we can do that. And it's like people feel uncomfortable for me to hold that, right? And they said, no, you can't, because you just have to accept everything. And I said, that's not the reality of life. You know, we've all got differences of opinions and views and values, but the strength of character, like, you know, building trolleys and getting falling off, is that actually you, you learn to accept reality. You learn to accept where people's position. My job is not to judge them, it's to keep loving them. And then when I do that, you know what happened, Paul? They love me back. They love yeah. us back. Yeah. And we don't... And, and I find it interesting, one of the challenges is that we are now living in a time, and, and this heads to things like free speech, for instance, right? It's like you can't have an opinion now, because if you do, they turn around, and that's why I said the media were always having a go at me, and I, I had to push back, and I said, you need to stop it. You know, I've never gone out to bag people from the choices that they make, and in this case, it's even more uh, hurting, discerning for me, is that they think that I couldn't hold my value, my view, but still love these people. They're my family. That's who I am. And I think that when I think about that, that's where I think that we've given way now, Paul, because, you know, in a lot of our cultures, we've learned to live and love each other throughout that. And now they're trying to challenge us and say, you can't do that. And I'm saying, I'm pushing, I, I push back and I say, no, you can't do that. I think a lot of people are starting, and I'm one of them, um, you know, I bumped along sort of agnostic for a long time. Sometimes the needle would point more to atheism if I really got into science and physics and I would see the, everything from a scientific dimension or, or point of view. But I, I have found myself coming back into more of a thinking about spirituality. Where, 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 where does that realm dwell? What, what is that? And blow me down, I've talked to quite a few people, and they're, think they're thinking the same thing too. So something's going on. Or is that what we do when we don't have answers or we can't explain something? 
I think it's a combination of both things, isn't it? <laughs> Probably, as in all things. You know, it, it's it's not an either or. Uh, often, but it, but it is happening. It is happening. It, yeah, it is happening. And look, I have to say, Paul, I'm I'm having great conversations with people who are saying exactly the same thing that you're saying, right? Because sometimes we we don't know the value of something until it's removed, right? And then when it's removed, when all of a sudden there's this gaping hole and we're trying to find answers to it, you know, and then people are saying, well, what do we do now? And uh, like I said, I can only go back to hold on to the values that I was taught from my grandmother and others, you know, and you realize that there's something that's bigger than who you are. It's a set of values that help you, to guide you, to love other people, not to be perfect. Can I just say to you, none of us, it's never to be perfect. It's not, it's not the pursuit of perfection. Actually, it's the journey of learning to grow, to mature, to love, to care. But also, too, it's not a soft thing, right? It's not being afraid. And when I think about people like Kate Shepard, who, you know, she came from the Christian temperance movement, right? She believed in the value that actually women should have the right to vote, which meant that you had to have courage. You know, I think about Suapara Ngāta when he was from Ngāti Paro. I mean, the things that he did, his faith was very much a big part of who he was. And he talked about up, all up and down the Ngāti Paro area, for instance, you know, you've got a, a marae there called Hari, uh, what you call um, Te Rongopai, which means the good news. Now, they talk about these values. They're very much part. In fact, when I was in Parliament, I used to read the handsards of the, a lot of these Māori MPs who would often pull debate with Pāki MPs and saying, hey, wasn't this... <laughs> the word that you gave to us that would give us hope. And now we're speaking from it. And now you're saying, no, no, there's something else. And they came to realize that spirituality was not just some gobbledygook thing. Actually, it's a it's both simple but powerful. It gives you a set of values of belief and understanding. It helps you to find forgiveness and, and activate forgiveness in others. You know, love, acceptance, and forgiveness become just really key values of what that is. But it's not a soft you know, fluffy ducks type thing, you know, it's actually very strong. And we're not called just to be peacekeepers with, you know, page blue helmets and, you know, a little vest and say, let's just make everyone happy. No, no. Peacemakers are not afraid to confront really tough issues. And that's where the spirituality comes for me is that, you know, I didn't want to go into parliament. It was the last thing that I wanted to do. But I felt that if I could make a contribution to be able to speak into and give life to what was there, why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I be able to do that? And then not be afraid by people trying to condemn you and fight against you and then push back and say, you need to stop doing that because there's no hatred in my heart, you know, but you keep trying to make me a person that you're not. And I think that's what's happened now. And that spirituality you're talking about, you know, I believe is is happening up and down our country. People are saying, you know, how do we return back to some set of values and understanding that will help us personally and help us in our own circumstances? Because I really believe that that the true testimony of your witness is what's the what's the posture of your heart? What's the condition of your home? And again, not perfection, but can you love and heal and restore brokenness even in your own home? Of course you can, you know. And then when you've got that there, then that's the power of your testimony when you're out in community, Right. That's that's what you call integrity. <laughs> hmm. That you know, you again, not perfection, but just saying, hey, we've got a our spiritual our faith is a key part that actually helps us to do the things that we do, and you know, hence the reasons why we came down 
uh, to Parliament. Okay, so you have experience of of that world. What happened to politicians? Because what happened a year ago or a year and a half ago now was only division. It was under the guise of team of five million, but in the end it was as brutal division as you could ever want before it, it got truly physical and to the scale that we've seen in history before. But it was it was nudging that, I feel. You may disagree. What happened to politicians? You mentioned that you know they stayed in the bunker. You would have gone out there. Would you have, even yeah. if that all signed up to it, would you have done that? Oh, look, I, I was so disgusted with what had happened. Um, and I remember, you know, texting some of my mates that were still in there. And they were right across the political divide, by the way, because I got on. I used to play parliamentary rugby with a lot of them. And we all, you know, got on with each other. And I'd say, what are you guys doing? What's what's the story here? You know, you should be going out because that's who we are. I believe what happened, Paul, is that they forgot the values. And again, that's why I say to you, the values that actually they were they were voted for, the things that were really important. And that's why that parliamentary prayer is so important because, you know, it, it starts off by we beseech thee, we ask for divine guidance, putting your personal and private interests aside. And but I how believe- can you get everyone to sign up to that? Not well, one broke well, out of the bunch. Not one. Yeah. Well, that's because they, you know, they you know, they had that saying they drank the Kool-Aid, right? You know, I know it's not a David Koresh type of situation, but you have to say it's pretty close when they, they none of them were willing to come out and actually speak out against that. And, uh, you know, to turn around and because uh, they just caught up in the hype. And I think that's actually what happened. Look, Paul, when I was in there my last year, uh, I spoke out about the um, COVID-19 public health response bill in its first, you know, iteration as it was coming through. Mm-hmm. And I got up and I remember I just really had a go. I said, what they've done, what this government has done is they've used the power of fear, the emotion of fear to manipulate and leverage this change. And and it's right across the board. I mean, if you can remember, the initial draft was talking about unwarranted access into people's homes, unwarranted access onto marais, you know, and into other places. You know, it was at that time, do you remember when they also said that you could have 100 people at a nightclub, 100 people at a gym, 100 people at a cafe or a restaurant, but you could only have 50 people to a funeral. Yeah. I mean, come on. What's going on there? 50 people. Well, I, well, I couldn't go to a, a, a very close relative's birthday party because they would have to have 50 less if I was there. It's just, you know, to me, this is where they lost sight, right? Because it was all about out of fear, they wanted power and control. And look, what happened there with the Prime Minister and when Jacinda Ardern turned around and she was asked the question by the media, so you're now saying there's going to be two class of citizens? That's not leadership. She that's, said yes, that's she, what it is. And she smiled right. when she yeah. said it. Oh, I tell you, it's uh, – so to me, what happened, they'd lost the values that are there. You know, when you sign up, and, and, and we used to do this, you have to uh, be sworn in, Paul. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the start of every parliament term of three years and you have to go in and you can either put your hand on the Bible or you can actually make a declaration. It's entirely up to you. I truly believe that people have forgotten the whole element of when you're swearing an oath. Your oath is about doing the best for the country and its people, standing on the values that are there. And I just really believe that um, 
people lost these politicians lost sight of it, you know. And I'm not bagging them because you know that's it's a tough place to be in, but at the same time too, I'm holding them to account. This is not a character assassination, but it it definitely is a challenge to the position that you hold, which I believe at the at, at, during that period of time, my own personal point of view is that they forgot them. And therefore, we ended up with a violent, eventually a violent confrontation at the end. Um, and yet people forgot about the amazing things when, remember when the water went on, the sprinklers went on? Yeah. And then, you know, the best photo I saw was not the ducks. Remember they had the row of ducks on one of the pools, but was the farmers coming in with the bales of hay. Yeah. I thought that, that that represented who we are as a country. When the farmers came in and said, we're not going to let that happen. And then they brought the bales of hay to counteract basically what was being done by the Speaker of the House. And, um, yeah. And no one's apologised. I'm going to get off this in just a moment, but no one has said sorry. They can't even bring themselves to apologise. And some of them must be wrestling with their consciences, I'm sure. But no one has come out and said, look, I'm so sorry. No one. None. Nada. Well, that's the reasons why when we went down there on that uh, Thursday morning, uh, well, actually it was on the Friday morning, you know, the whole word repent, uh, you know, yeah, it's a spiritual word, it's a biblical word, but it's about, it's about saying sorry, right? And even though all of us that were there at that time, you know, some of them were part of it and, you know, none of us, I wasn't in parliament and so forth, but sometimes you've got to say sorry for a nation and sorry for what went on. And that's what we did. We just said, Lord, we're really sorry for what it, it hurts us, it grieves us. And let that be the starting point of bringing some healing back into our nation again, because we certainly need it. Excuse me. Yeah, I'm going to um, just ask you one more question, because I think it's another question that people are asking of themselves and others. You know, we have all sorts of types of warfare. Is it your assessment that we're in kind of some sort of spiritual war at the moment? Are we? Yeah, look, I, I would say that I believe that it is a spiritual warfare. And, you know, I have to say that when you, and you'll know this for when you've traveled over to different countries and around the world, um, a lot of different countries have a different view on spirituality, right? <laughs> In fact, a lot of indigenous countries will talk about the spiritual realm is far greater. Yeah, it's more relevant and in their face than anything else. Absolutely. And so, you know, I have to say that, and I, I want to preface that so people don't think like, you know, oh, Alfred's on some weird, wacky stuff, you know. Um, but it's a fact is, is that, again, I think that in our culture and then especially in our Polynesian culture, but also other cultures as well, spiritually, we are in a spiritual warfare, you know, for sure. And what does that actually look like? And again, it starts off with values that we've given way to, things that we've sort of said, no, they don't matter anymore uh, as well. And uh, look again, lots of debates about things. For instance, if I think that when I was in Parliament, what are some of the values that have created a spiritual warfare? And I think open up spiritual portals of things that have come out against us. So when I think about the, the euthanasia debate, and you and I won't debate that now, but one of the things that I have to say, people came forward, 36,000, the largest that at any one point submitted against that bill, 90% said no. We had doctors who said no because of being unsafe. We had... Those from the legal fraternity said no because it was unsafe, right? Um, and a number of people said, don't do this. But, you know, we did. And so what that meant is that meant that the value of life now has shifted. 
And so once we've done that, we open ourselves up to all sorts of conversations and things that are happening. By the way, elder um, or age concern in their submission turned around that elder abuse is on the rise. 75% of it is through family members. And they said, don't do this, because at the moment, coercion and other things, it's just too hard. So going back to your question, I wanted to give a bit of context that when you give way to values like that, the spiritual warfare just intensifies. It really does. And, I, and again, this is my own personal view. Yeah, of course. The view of a number of others. You think about the abortion law reforms. And again, you and I are not going to get in a debate whether it's pro-life, pro-life or pro-choice. But it's interesting because I've said to people, has anyone who are pro-life, uh, uh, which got pro-choice, have you actually, and these are colleagues and these are people that were in parliament, have you ever watched an, an abortion being performed? They said, no. You know, well, it's not hard to be able to have a look at it. Have you talked to doctors and others and, and why did we have to turn around and make the, the – we've now got the most extreme abortion laws in the world. So as a nation, there are things that we've opened ourselves up to, and again, speaking from my point of view spiritually, that we are under the values. Once you give way to the values spiritually and practically, then what happens is that we come under all sorts of challenges now uh, in our nation. And that's – and again, that's just my, my point of view. But I have to say um, – what we're seeing now is the result of that. How do we change that around? Well, again, my point of view, well, first of all, take us back to remind us about the values that are important, uh, values that we were founded on as a nation, begin to pray the prayers, uh, and prayers have actions too. So we're not just sitting in a closet and praying. We're actively getting out there, seeing what we can do to shift and change things. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, is Okay. Is there – well, there's always hope, but is there – enough to be hopeful for do you think because it does seem like the walls are closing in a bit right now i mean men aren't men women aren't women um you know it's it's kind of crazy how far does it go do you think before responsible politicians and we've got an election coming up and people are even wondering if they should vote anymore i mean this is where we're at so how do you see how do you see it sort of coming out of this period? Well, one of the things I, I say to people is that our hope is not in politics and politicians, right? Our hope has to be in a value that we have, and that's really important. And so here's here's what we need to do is that let's take charge back again in our hearts. And if there's anything there we need to release, any bitterness, any things from the past and the present, then we need to let go of when we do that. Then we start looking at our own circumstance and our home, what do we need to do? When you start doing that, there's no legislation, no government that can touch that, right? Though I have to say, these guys are knocking on the door at the moment. Well, they are. It feels like it. Yeah. So take back charge, first of all. So that way, and, and look, if there's stuff that you need to deal with, deal with it. Because your credibility of speaking out, anyone can stand up with good intentions and say, hey, we want to save the nation. And I'll say, yeah, okay, then tell us your story. You ask them that, Paul. You Tell me your story. Where do you come from? What is it? Where's the motivation? What are you actually really trying to do? And how do you think you're going to do that? So start with our heart, then begin with our home, and then we start to influence our community, right? You can start now saying to the government, actually, I'm going to be in charge of my community here. You know, I believe I've been up to places like Moirewa and Murupara and Kawarau, you know, communities that people often despise and flax mare and so forth. And here's my message to them. Up in Moirewa, talking to people up there, and I said, you know what? Great things can happen out of Moirewa. They said, really? Yeah, absolutely. 
And they said, you do realize that we're the worst town in the whole of the country. And I said, that's even better because there's only way one, only one way that's up. Yeah. And they all laugh and they said, really? Yes. And so my wife and I, we've been going there, speaking into the people, encouraging them, right? Some great things. When you do that, right, you don't have to rely upon government shifting. No, no, start shifting your communities by yourself, right? You've got the power to be able to do that. They don't have to dictate. They don't have to determine that. We need to shift the balance of power away from government back into our own forms of reality. Now, at the same time, too, let's then ask questions of those who are going in. Let's not just ask questions whether you're going to fix the economy, fix education, and fix health. Start off by saying to them, right, and this comes from Psalm 130. Don't spy on us. Don't Don't cancel us. Stop telling us what to think. Stop trying to persuade our kids in schools that they're not who they are. These are the things. Yeah, ask them questions like that. What are the what are their values? What is their vision? Where do they where do they come from? What are the things that they see are really important? Because you're absolutely right. Because you know the right of parents to parent their children is the right of parents. You Always know? has been, right? Always has been. But they forgot that Latin word. Remember, there's a Latin saying. It's called loco parentis, which mm-hmm. means in, in 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 place of the parent, which is what educators used to be taught about their role of responsibility. So therefore, they take that consciously and carefully. These are things that are there. So do I have hope? Absolutely. Why? Because I've seen it as I've traveled around the country, from big cities to small towns to talking to people and giving them hope and saying, start off with your heart, then in your home, then start your own community, start gathering together, then start to tell to those people, not just in government, but in government departments, we're taking back our whānau and our family. We're going to start dealing with these things, right? Because for too long, we've actually surrogated roles of responsibility to other people, and now these people are taking charge of them. My encouragement to them is, is that now you start taking charge. You start taking hold of it. And when we do that, I believe we're going to see the best of us. Unfortunately, there's a bit of ugliness we're probably going to have to go through. Yeah, I agree. And my greatest, and like I say to people, don't put your hope in this election and then in, in the politicians. Change it, shift it, absolutely. But you can start here first. Start with where you're at. And if they want a, a reference to that, you know, look at the, the book of Esther in the Bible. And because the powerful story is when everyone knew that there was there was imminent danger, she did this when she had an opportunity with the king. She said, Come to my realm, come to my home and and, and dine and have it and, and dine with me. In other words, she bought the palace the power of the palace to her own home and her community. Then she could speak with authority. You know, I would say to people, don't go down to Wellington if it's not your realm of authority there. Bring them to where you are. The days that Moirewa, Murupara, Flaxmere, these communities start turning around and bringing and saying, no, if you want to see hope, come to where we are. Let's see the abattoir now there. By the way, if you drive past there now, Paul, they've got a sign outside that hiring. <laughs> well, that's great. It's great. Because yeah. life is coming back. People are saying, we believe in this town. Look, it's still pretty rough and rugged, but it doesn't matter. We're going to take back our towns, our communities, and that's what we have to believe in. And so I've got I've got a lot of hope. Those are great words. And I think that's a – unless you've got a- any more points or anything you want to add to that, that's a great point to finish our chat. I want to thank you so much, Alfred Ignato, for coming on RCR. It's great to have you. Thank you, Paul. And uh, again, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, uh, it's been great. And I just want to 
Yeah, I do pray a blessing on all of those in our communities and our towns and upon you. I want to say thank you, Paul, and all of those that are part of Voices for Freedom who've, who've initiated this. Why? Because in your hearts, you, you don't just want to sit. And I love the way that you said in your story, you may have been absent at one point in time, but now's your time to actually stand up and do your part. And I want to honor you for that. Thank because, you. Because, you know, that's important. It's not about where we start. It's where we are now. And every one of us can make a difference. And I want to say thank you for what you're doing uh, and everyone else that's in there. It's important because we need this, these platforms to create this narrative of conversation. Because, by the way, no one else is doing it. Yeah, we noticed that. <laughs> it's like having the whole farm to yourself. That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much for those kind words. Right back at you as well. And we'll talk again. We will. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.